Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. All right, we're going to get to our interview with Lucas Glover here very shortly. I would imagine that a group of you are tuning in to hear about Lucas's recent run-in with his wife in uh, Ponte Vedra. It's been all over the news, and it's no secret to anybody in the golf world. I want to set the scene first that Lucas and I had agreed prior to the players to do this interview during Memorial Tournament Week. Obviously, this incident popped up in the meantime, and Lucas was kind enough to honor this podcast request, and it was kind of still his idea to follow through and go through with the podcast. So I did, of course, ask him how he wanted to handle the recent incident in terms of the podcast, and he said that he cannot say anything about it. I'm welcome to ask about it, but his response is going to be, that I literally can't say anything about it. So there is no discussion about it on the podcast and that it was Lucas's request. And obviously we are understanding of the position that he's in and that if he could say anything about it, he would. He's looking forward to being able to speak about it into the near future, but there is no conversation about it on the podcast. I hope that's understandable and we sincerely appreciate Lucas's willingness to go forward with the podcast during this uh, difficult time for him and his family. So with that in mind, we get right into it. No formalities, no introduction. We start talking about the Memorial Tournament and, uh, of course, his uh, his career on the PGA Tour. So hope you enjoy it, and I hope you respect Lucas's privacy in this time uh, related to the incident and understand the situation that he's in. And uh, really appreciative of the content that we got out of this, and hope you guys enjoy. Cheers. So... Growing up here as a kid, I got to attend the Memorial Tournament. I didn't know how special of a tournament it was growing up here as a kid. What makes the Memorial special to someone like you? It's Jack's place, first and foremost. And uh, the history here, the conditions of the golf course, and uh, just the best field, one of the best fields of the the year, and one of the best courses of the year, one of the best weeks of the year. Um, Great for family, great for friends, and great for the fans. It's always right here, Memorial around the Memorial holiday, either the week of or the, or the week leading to. So fan support's great. Columbus golf history is amazing and uh, just killer week all the way around. So from, from a hospitality standpoint, I feel like other tournaments have started to catch up to Memorial. How, ma- how many years have you been coming here and can you see kind of the influence this event has had from a hospitality standpoint for the players at other events? Yeah, absolutely. So this is 15 years on tour. Uh, first two years, uh, I wasn't in, didn't finish high enough to qualify myself, but since then I haven't missed it. Um, and hospitality-wise, as far as, you know, you drive up, they valet, they take your car, locker rooms, top shelf, food at the, in the locker room is amazing. You can eat dinner here. It's one of the, I think we only got three events now. You can eat dinner at the clubhouse, really? which is awesome. Um, and, and, and yeah, this was, a, I think this was a model for a lot of tournaments and they've, they've, they've started catching up, but they, uh, they got it nailed here for sure. From a golf course standpoint, what here suits your eye? What doesn't, is this, is this a good course fit for you? Yeah, I, I like it. Um, I've always liked it. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of shape, shape holes, shape shots. You know, I, I kid Mr. Nicholas when I see him that a lot of them are fades. But, you know, being a hooker, uh, give him a hard time about that. But um, I, I, I thank everybody at, at Bay Hill uh, for the right to left. But, uh, uh, no, it, it's great. It's 
it's got a lot of it's got a lot of a lot of courses, if that makes sense. It's yeah. got trees in play, like a Hilton Head or a Colonial. It's got uh, it's got short holes. It's got long holes. It's got reachable par fives, and they're so Nicholas Perfect risk reward, which he's known for for par fives, and they're they're the best set of par fives risk reward I've ever played. And if you're driving it good, long irons or, or fairway wooden it good, you can make a ton of birdies on the fives. If you're not the layups are tough, the wedge shots are tough, et cetera. And typical of a necklace, the par threes are amazingly good slash difficult. The back nine ones, first of all, are like perfect replicas of 12 and 16 of Augusta. Almost perfect, right. but just more difficult. Right. And that 16 green still doesn't hold balls no. as well as the other holes no, do. No, won't, won't hold a javelin, we like to say. <laughs> um, all right, this question, I've always wanted to ask you this because it, it drives me absolutely insane. How do you hit a golf club, a golf ball without wearing a glove? I don't understand it. Yeah, um, my hands don't sweat for whatever reason. It's got to be crazy humid uh, to just get a little bit. But I didn't grow up using one. My first instructor or my first real instructor as a kid was Dick Harmon, and uh, I remember the first or second time I went to Houston to visit with him. My grandfather went with me, and I hit so many balls, my hands started to hurt. So they. Old man, old man, tough love, went inside, cut the fingers out of a glove and said, well, at least your palms won't hurt. And that was the last time I wore a glove. I was 12. You have not worn one that I have not since. worn one since. Even uh, when it rains, you don't need a glove. Nothing. 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 So um, if I get like a bead of sweat on my hands, I, I put my rain gloves on. Because I can't I, – I, maybe my – you must have like a really good, just strong grip on the club. I yeah, think. I, may, I may, uh, may grab it a little too tight. But, uh, no, a joke my buddies like to play on me is if uh, if they want to laugh, they give me a glove and say, here, hit me a seven iron. And I'm a, I'm a solid 15 handicap really? with a glove. It I affects say. you that much? Oh, yeah, I got no idea where the club head is. No idea. Can't, can't feel the club head don't know where it is and it's either a dead block or a rope with a with a seven iron the irony of the u.s <laughs> open that you won being like the most rain soaked right. event it's ever without the glove just again just blows my mind i can't yeah. physically we'll get we're going to get to the u.s open but sure you touched on it there with uh with dick Harmon. but what was your what was your upbringing like in golf how did you get into golf and what was your young golf career like yeah grandfather uh was an athlete uh, uh baseball football growing up took up golf when he got into business after his sports career was over uh, just fell in love with it and ended up playing a lot of, I guess they'd call it customer golf for entertainment and turned himself into a pretty good player. And then my mother, uh, my mom has five brothers. And when I was growing up, I think their combined handicap was around 10. So a lot of good uh, holiday golf with the fam. And uh, so did the whole family thing, started playing tournaments around seven or eight and uh, full-fledged junior schedule at at 10, and um, Jay Haas, who lived in my hometown um, and was a member at the course we were members at, my grandfather went to Jay and said, he's, he's passing me, I can't, I can't keep up, he, I don't know what to tell him anymore. And, and Jay said, well, well, we got, you know, right now you got two options if you want to go take him to see the best and see if he can improve and, and maybe take this thing where you all think he can, you can go see um, David Ledbetter or Dick Harmon. And our plan was to, to, to see both and we saw Dick first and no offense to, to David but uh, I didn't feel and my grandfather didn't feel at that time we needed to go see David it was just a really really good fit um, with, with Dick and, and the way he was with me and um, so I worked with him all through high school all through college and until the day he died um, in uh, 2006 but um, um, 
high school's typical high school golf and summer summer schedule, a couple tournaments here and there, and then college at Clemson. And what was the course you grew up playing? Sorry, uh, uh, Thornblade. It's where, Thornblade. Where you, where, yep, where you just were. My grandmother uh, probably watched you hit a few shots on 17 there. She's she's to the left of 17 okay. T. Um, still there, but uh, and then uh, college at Clemson and and. Uh, had a solid career there and, and decided, I don't know, about halfway through that I wanted to really go full force and try to get out here. Yeah, well, you're, you're breezing through it rather quickly. So Sorry. high school, no, it's all good. High school golf, you were you won states as a freshman and sophomore. Is that when, when did you know that you were like a, a special talent at golf and not just better than your closest peers, but you had yeah, a yeah. special talent? It was interesting. Early on, I was a big kid, so I hit it further than everybody from, you know, eight years old to 12 or 13. And because of that, I, I, I seem to do very well because, you know, obviously you hit it further, you have shorter clubs in, and it's easier. Well, as everybody caught up to me in size and then therefore in length, uh, it became harder for me. And the complacency might have caught up a little bit early in high school. Some guys I was beating a lot started beating me, and that really opened my eyes. All right, we got to change the way we work at this. And and my grandfather and my parents were very instrumental in that. And they said, look, if you know, if you want to do this, we kind of got to – we're not pushing you. We're not telling you you have to do things, but there needs to be a little more dedication because we spend a lot of money traveling and this and that. And let's, you know, if you want to do this, let's get what we can out of it. And and that that resonated, but only when some guys I was used to beating started beating me a good bit and more than I was beating them. So um, that turned it around. So probably sophomore, junior year, of high school, I knew I wanted to play in college, and then I knew. I knew I kind of wanted to do it, but I didn't really know if it was realistic yet. I thought I needed to see what happened in college, and and uh, yeah, when and you do went that. there, did you think you would be an elite player there, or did you think you'd fit in with the rest of the team, or where did you think you racked up at that point? I've, I've, I knew I'd I knew I'd fit in with the guys because I'd been over there a fair amount. I grew up only only forty minutes from 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 Clemson and spent you know a lot of time there going to football games and sporting events and a lot of family history there and. Um, so I visited there a lot, knew some of the guys that were a little older than me when I was a junior, and so I knew we'd get along. And but I, I didn't know, I didn't know how to, or I didn't know if it would translate. I didn't know if I expected it to. But in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, I'm, they're not giving me a spot in the starting five. I still got to go earn it. And you got the defending NC2A individual champion Charles Warren, who was there his senior year, my freshman year, two other seniors that had played almost every event and another freshman coming in with me and Jonathan Bird was going to be a sophomore. So there was no guarantees. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it turned out good, but those all those guys made me made me better. The competition made me better. The silly gambling games at practice made me better and all that stuff. But we were pretty well loaded for four years and the competing and Competing for national championships as a, as a team and individually and all that stuff was was pretty good prep and I kind of saw it. I, I thought I had a a pretty good chance, but it was still motivating. My first couple of years weren't great. I, I played okay, but my last two years were were pretty good and um, and I I felt like if I kept on the right track, I could uh, I could get out here and maybe make some noise. So you you uh, you won three events while you were at Clemson. You won the South Carolina AM three times, and then played on the 2001 Walker Cup team. Was that? And uh, so you talked a bit about kind of seeing where your game racked up as you moved up the ladder. What was the Walker Cup like? Was that another another chance to kind of play against people from another country and see yeah, where you stood? Absolutely. Um, that a lot was a pretty stacked Walker Cup when it comes to pros that ended up yeah playing it at, the was. Top, at the elite level. Yeah, at least. we got we got worked, but. Uh, um, yeah, it was that was a, that was that was special. I played on the Palmer Cup in, in college, and uh, that was so special. That was the first 
opportunity I had to, to carry the red, white, and blue on, on, on my back. And that was really cool. And I think that and the Walker Cup kind of mm, formed my affinity for team golf and my respect for it and want to. And, you know, still a huge goal to play on a Ryder Cup. But, yeah, Walker Cup with the team we had, the team they had, it was – it was going to be a test, and it was going to be a, a good barometer for for where I stood. Because a few of their guys played over here: Luke Donald, um, um, gosh, I'm blanking. Graham McDowell. Graham, uh, Nick Doherty. Had, I knew I knew of him. He didn't go to school over here, but I knew of him. And um, yeah, they were loaded. But you know, we as a team didn't uh, didn't put up a very good fight. But I, I felt like I I played pretty well. I, I do remember being. Uh, Three under through four against Luke individual and being uh, and being three down. So yeah. what? Yeah, How is that I possible? think he birdied or two down. I'm sorry. Okay. He, he he birdied three holes and made an eagle. And uh, was, <laughs> all right, cool man. Wake so, up call. Yeah, exactly. Who were so around this time you're about to start your transition to professional golf? Who were the guys you looked up to the most on the PGA Tour? Who, if you would have walked into the same room as, would you have been starstruck by? Um, well, obviously Tiger. It's two thousand one. Yeah, two thousand two thousand one, two thousand and two. He's he's at he's tip top, right? But uh, I mean, he was he was he had already taken the world by storm, but he was winning everything and winning everything by a lot. And you know, he had the best swing in the world, maybe in history, right around then. Um, and and did for a long time. I'm never gonna say anything about Tiger's golf swing. I'm still in awe of it and the things he can do. Um, that being said, I was always very um, impressed and and have a great relationship still with Jay Haas. Uh hometown I, or I grew up in the same town he lived in and raised his family in and um, I looked up to Jay uh, since I was a kid and uh, um, doing that and then and then getting advice from him getting some push from him getting some tips from him and and even still, I walk in a room and it's still like, man, there's Jay. How cool! But, um, but Tiger was Tiger was the the one at the time. Everybody was starstruck and bright-eyed by him, and 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 we all should have been. Um, but it was still a few years before I'd see him in person. So, if you could go back to Lucas Glover in 2001, 2002, and give that person any advice, what would it be? What's something that you were just completely ignorant to about life on PGA Tour or anything like that? It's hard. It's not as it's not wake up, roll out of bed, go to the tee. There's a, and I and I talk about this a lot with juniors or Q and A's or, or different things we do. Is it's the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday grind to get ready for Thursday was so different than I expected. Um, traveling, playing nationwide tour, then and then transitioning to out here, and then transitioning to traveling. Um, with a family and just the the Monday Tuesday Monday Tuesday Wednesday grind of tour life, no matter what tour it is, was a surprise to me. I knew it wasn't easy. I knew traveling was 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 not easy on the body, easy on the game. This and that. I didn't realize, and maybe till even my late twenties, how tough it was. Especially back to back weeks. Yeah, right? yeah, or three in a yeah, row. Yeah, two two three four weeks in a row, or you're not playing well and you're trying to play your way out of it and. You feel like every day you need to be grinding when it might be better to take a day off and then learning which one's better for you or not or et cetera, et cetera. But and all that's a personal thing too. You gotta know your body, know what you need, know what you don't. But I was if I you know, your original question, go back, what would you tell yourself? 
you gotta you gotta be diligent with your time early in the week and make travel day travel day don't try to cram too much in all right i got to get there at noon on monday so i can practice all day and let's make monday a travel day and just make build in a day off every week mm-hmm. a lot of times early in my career i was trying to bust out of town sunday get in at midnight to the next town and get out there monday at 9 a.m and work and then play tuesday and then practice all day wednesday come thursday i was kind of tired yeah man but i think that's also being excited about being new on tour and excited about competing and excited about trying to beat the guys you looked up to all your life and but that is a trap i think uh and i see it now with some some guys that uh, i play some practice rounds with that are just new out here and they're so excited to go to the next place the next week and I say, hey man, let's you know just let's kind of deep breaths. Yeah, take it slow. Well, yeah, let, you know, let's 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 kind of walk in instead of running in this mm-hmm. week. And um, but even even established professionals, and you're probably still experiencing it. That I mean, Rory talked about getting to tournaments earlier this year and having kind of a new schedule when he gets to tournaments and preparation wise. So people are always kind of tinkering with that schedule, even after you've established quote unquote established yourself. There's different routines that you try and. I think Phil has tried every different uh, different way of preparing for the U.S. Open and for sure. the Masters, and everyone's got their own different cycles. Yeah, t- uh, absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of it depends. Are you in the Pro-Am every week? So do I get in Tuesday night at an event I've played the last 10 years, or do I get in Monday night, play nine holes Tuesday, and then practice? What? And, again, it's a personal thing. And as as you are more established, chances are you're, you're – you're having a family or you got family obligations. So do I, do I slide home for a Monday, Tuesday morning and then get back out and the next week may be different. So it's all, it's all reading your body, knowing what you need, especially I'm, I'm 38, 15th season out here and I'm, I'm, I'm still learning and doing things and having to talk myself into a day off or talk myself into a grind or you just got to listen to your body and listen to your, to your mind too. You got to rest your brain out here too, as weird as that sounds. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yep. A quick update from our friends at Callaway as they continue to bring the heat with the new black Smoke Rogue Pro irons. These murdered out pros are some of the coolest irons I've ever seen. The iron heads feature a sleek black PVD finish with a custom black medallion, and they come stock with a limited edition blacked out True Temper XP 105 shaft and a black grip. Rogue is the number one selling iron in the U.S. this year thanks to the combination of Callaway's new urethane microspheres for soft feel and great sound and 360 face cup for incredible ball speed even on off-center hits. The Rogue Pro black irons will be available for a limited time starting next Friday, June 8th. Visit CallawayGolf.com for more info on Rogue Pro black irons from Callaway, the number one irons in golf. I swear they keep putting me in a new set of irons that I love and they keep coming out with even better ones that make me want to try even more. I need to just just settle in on on one, but they keep making this more difficult. So, uh, back for now, back to Lucas Glover. So going from Clemson straight to the Nationwide Tour, you didn't earn your card in the first year, but you you broke out in twenty in two thousand three. You won on the Nationwide Tour, earn, earned your card. What was what did that Nationwide Tour kind of teach you about professional golf? I'd imagine one of the first things is it's not all glitz and glamour. That's exactly right. That's <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, I did the did the mini tour stuff uh, kind of into one and o two. Uh, played, I don't know, four or five different tours all around O2. Um, but I Mondayed enough into, into some nationwide events and had enough top 25s. And I ended up with probably a half of a schedule that year. And I <coughs> finished high enough to retain st- or to get status the next year. Um, missed my cut by a shot in O2. And I say it, I've said it 100 times, that's the best thing that happened to me as a pro yeah. was not getting my card in O2 because I was not ready. I lipped out a chip on nine at uh, – 
um, stadium course in, in uh, PGA West to get my card and was completely devastated. But two, three, four years later, 15 years later now, it's the best thing that happened to me. Yeah. I was not ready to be out here. And to your point, that showed me that, all right, now I'm on a tour for the whole year. I can pick my schedule and start learning how to play golf week in and week out, different courses, different um, grass, different cities, different grass, and uh, adapting to adversity, you know, adapting to not having your game, but grinding out a cut when you need it because you're trying to get your card. So are 150 other guys out there. And um, But that year, uh, 03, having that schedule planned and laid out and, and just learning tour life with a schedule, with a plan, um, was was huge, and I think it, you know won kind of three quarters of the way through the year to ice down my card after playing pretty solid for the year. So that's what almost everyone I talk to about their time. You know, the established tour pros talk about their time on Nationwide Tour, you know, Web.com Tour, whatever it is. They almost all kind of say that same thing, and like that taught me how to be a professional. Like Absolutely I needed that. If you go straight out to the PGA Tour, you're just not ready to handle that grind. So. Yeah. It, yeah. It's remarkable what a lot of the young kids that are out here winning are doing without experiencing that. Yeah. It shows you how good that yeah. young crop really is. And that's what that, you know, you go out into web events and you see such a eclectic mix of journeymen and young guys and guys in their thirties that are still trying to make it. And it just gives you that much more appreciation for the guys that are able to retain their card uh, year in and year out. So your rookie season on the PGA tour was 2004 you finished outside the top 125. You regained your card at Q School, but what do you remember most about that year? Was that was there still kind of that shock factor when you got out there for the first time? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I played in a I played in a couple of events on some sponsor exemptions because of some things we talked about earlier. Walker Cup and pretty decent college career and qualified for the U.S. Open in '02 at, at Beth Page. That was my first major, and so when I got my full tour card in '04, um, there was still a little bit oh man I'm on tour full time I gotta do this this and this and but there was also a, um, a little sense of a little sense of comfort because I'd played in a handful of events um, leading up to um, that that season but I remember my first event full event was um, Sony in Hawaii and I played on Sunday early we I barely made the cut I played Sunday early with Lauren Roberts and Lauren Roberts hit about six greens and shot uh, a couple under, and I think I hit 15 or 16 and shot a couple over. And I remember walking back over to the hotel um, thinking, man, I probably should go chip and putt a little because uh, that guy's been out here a really long time, and I, it didn't look like he should have beat me today. But one of those learning experiences from those established guys you learned yeah. said, you know, he didn't have it. He just grinded out a 67 or 8, whatever it was, hitting six greens, getting up and down, and might have hit six fairways, whatever it was. But um, that season was great. It was, again, a lot of learning and missed my card. Went back to Q school, birdie three of the last four to get my card back, even though I had a little security, that 126 to 150. But um, you always want that. You always want that yeah. full exempt status for scheduling, but and then uh, and that, but that was uh, that was kind of a blessing also in disguise that you get out there. It's not guaranteed. You got to you got to work. You got to grind. 
So what have you always been known as essentially as a ball striker? Like when you came out on tour, you were a ball striker. Did you, was it when you came out in that first year? I know you just referenced that story, but did you know your putting and chipping needed to improve drastically? Or did you have any kind of grasp as to where your strengths were and where your weaknesses were? Yeah, always, always been a good, a good ball striker, always been a good ball hitter and always, you know, was comfortable curving the ball and trying to shape it and um, predominantly a, a hooker, but uh don't mind cutting it if I have to, but um, yeah, that was that was kind of bread and butter. That's always in my back pocket, or especially then. Um, but you know, short game, day in and day out, out here, it's the most important thing, and I can't tell people that enough. And it's hard to understand when all they show is us hitting drivers and and tapping in for for birdie on par fives. You know, I feel like that's all we see anymore. But um, I didn't know at the time that it needed it needed that much work because it was it was solid, yeah. but it wasn't great. Um, but days like that and then seeing how tour players that have been out here a long time practiced and prepared their short games for the week at different places and different different shots they may need at different courses was was eye-opening mm-hmm. a good a good experience and a good learning um, learning experience it's interesting to hear you say that that short game being the most important because the statistics that have come out in recent years, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Mark Brody and the strokes gain analysis. I was just blown away at how much emphasis he thinks there is on tee to green and how that makes up essentially 70% of the game, whereas the remaining 30% is putting. Have you looked into statistic analysis or done any research regarding that? Has that helped you with at all with any parts of your game? Uh, I do look at it to see we, you know, weekly, where did I stack up my instructor? Tony Ruggiero sends me a little info packet every Sunday night after a tournament. Here's where you stacked up against the top ten. Here's where you stacked up against the winner. And then obviously the tour stats are easy. You can just go in there and sure. look. Um, but it is a great thing, great barometer to see, all right, where did I stack up against everybody that played better than me? Or um, or what did I do well or not so well that week according to the, the whole field instead of just the ten or the top ten or the winner? Um, and frankly, for me, it's usually in that putting short game area. So um, I don't, uh, I didn't know about the seventy percent that the tee to green. Um, so that good for me, man. <laughs> well, that's that's the the biggest takeaway I had from that was I kept blaming myself for missing like ten foot par putts, mm-hmm. and I said if I could just putt, I would be such a good player. And then you look at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, I hit eight greens today like I shouldn't probably shoot under par and it was so much emphasis gets put on whether or not you hit the ball into the hole but you don't factor in the variance of the likelihood of that you'd actually make that putt right so what blew me away and this has been a few years now but I was very irritated at myself about like six to eight foot putts I was pretty good from short doing pretty good 10 to 20 feet in these little six eight footers and somebody I think it was another player I can't remember who he said you know what don't be so hard on yourself tour average from there's like 61 percent or something so how many are you making i was like you know i feel like i make two out of three and they go that's better than tour average bro i was right. like oh you never really think about it because you think you should make every six foot or eight footer and then you you think about it you know like, maybe i should lighten up on that a little bit so to to your point you know don't, don't be so hard on yourself about 10 footers you're already going to get the <laughs> podcast bump this week so now that i'm now that i've given you given you tips here <laughs> yeah I know you're giving me all the stuff <laughs> No, but I, I, the, the more I look at it, the more, and that's why I was especially interested to talk to you, that I think so much of this game is about getting the ball close to the hole in two shots and on par threes in one shot, and sure. that so much gets decided and how I'm, with my own personal game, I'm trying to miss on fat side of greens much more than get after pins because the amount of shots I cost myself by missing in the bunkers or short side of myself is way 
I miss, I lose more shots than I do making birdies at those pins. It's a different game for you guys, obviously. We'll think, we'll, we'll think about it this way: when you when your short game's, you know, really good. Let's let's take a let's take Jordan when Jordan's clicking on all cylinders. Short siding doesn't scare him. Short siding doesn't scare Phil. Short siding doesn't scare Tiger. Yeah. Because all right, I'm gonna. I'm going to pick my spots, but if I do pick a spot and miss on the short side, my short game's good enough right now, or I'm making all my my putts if I hit a decent to average chip or bunker shot or whatever. So that frees up your mind a little too. Um, and I, from my own experience, I feel that way when when I feel like my short game and the putter's good, and that's just that confidence of having, you know, again, short game good, short game in, the, in your back pocket and bail you out of some trouble. Yeah. And so anyway, that's uh, hmm. here nor there, I yeah. guess. Um, all right, so 2005, your first victory on tour, you win at Disney. What do you remember most about your first PGA Tour win? A crazy bunker shot. Yeah. <laughs> like 38 yards or something, 38, 35 yards. Uh, and I, I remember, obviously, that. Coming from kind of nowhere, I, I shot I don't know, 31 or two on the back. But I remember waiting on a playoff. Like, I remember standing over there on the range, Magnolia course at Disney, and and uh, and – and I think Tom Pernice was the only one that could 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 tie me. And uh, coming up 18, and, and I just remember standing there, and I think Slugger was there. And he's just, you know, he's like cool and calm, and I'm, you know, I could panic. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm full full panic. What, what do what do what do I do if he makes that 10 footer or 12 footer or whatever Tom had? And so I got to go back to 18. All right, give me the driver. I got to hit some kind of draw out there, and then it's probably like an eight iron. I'm, you know, I'm. You know, I didn't even think about things are moving quickly. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, but you know, I remember obviously remember the bunker shot, and I remember my little goofy reaction, like did that actually happen? And then I, I really just remember standing over there on the range in full panic, like oh my, if he makes that, what, what do we do now? Oh yeah, we got to go play. And again, it was just you said it perfectly. Things are moving quick. <laughs> things are moving fast, and he was playing really, really slow. It felt like he wasn't, but to me, things were moving fast. So and then 2006, and I don't remember exactly what kind of where you stood, but you had nine top tens, and it, you had, it seemed like you had one of your better years on tour. Were you in the running for a captain's pick for the Ryder Cup at that point? Do you remember I, how I, close you were? I was um, six and eight, um, definitely. I'm trying to remember. I get the years confused. Who was captain when? But six was eight was Zinger. Yep. But six was uh, Tom Lehman, I think. Okay. Yeah, definitely was in the running there. Um, played practice rounds with Tom at TPC, and he was kind of feeling me out. And um, I believe he ended up picking Scott Verplank and Stewart. Um, still to this day, two of my better friends, and we're two of my better friends on the tour then. So no hard feelings there, but. Uh, Nine top tens and and a win the year before, and I felt uh, I felt like I deserved it. Um, I think they picked a lot earlier then, and if I remember right, they picked uh, Monday or Tuesday of Akron, and then I finished fourth in Akron that week. So and you finished tied for eighth at the Tour Championship too, right, right before so, it. So. <laughs> um, uh, so my memory's not as bad as I think, but uh, I, I, I did feel deserving then. But I also understood Tom's reasoning was I, I got a bunch of rookies and I need some veterans. I said, hey man, I get it. Yep. And he told me then who he was picking. I said, you know what? Those are those are my buddies. Good for them. And um, you know, I was I was happy for them. Sad for myself, but you know, life goes on, and I still played pretty good golf that year. Next year, you get a captain's pick from Jack Nicklaus for mm. the President's Cup. Your yep. first team golf. You mentioned how much you enjoyed it. Yeah. So what was I mean? What was that? That had to feel like quite the honor. Yeah, that was amazing. That was that was that was amazing. And 
I, I had a pretty good feeling that it was going to happen. I'd seen, I'd seen Slew a bunch. Jeff Slewman, who was the assistant captain, and and Jeff did a great job of sticking sticking around everybody and and and, and staying in touch. And uh, I remember walking through the airport the night they were picking, and uh, phone rang, and I don't even know if I knew what caller ID was, but I knew I didn't have it programmed in my phone. And I said, well, that's an odd number. So maybe I should answer this one on a night like this. And it was Mr. Nicholas. And I knew right then when he when he said, Lucas, Jack Nicholas. And it was just the, the couldn't say it just then or make any emotion about it, but I was just, I was elated and relieved too, because it was something I'd focused on and, and, and grinded about and kind of, Stayed up a little at night thinking about it because I, I wanted it. I wanted to uh, have that feeling from 01 Walker Cup with the red, white, and blue on your back. That's a pretty good feeling. Yeah. And so, what was the President's Cup experience, right? As you mentioned for Plank and Sink being some of your buddies, you, you paired with them for the first three rounds and you played with Charles Howell as well. Yeah. What do you remember most about the President's Cup? Uh, just the experience. It was, it was some of my first outside of the ropes experiences with some guys Tiger, Phil. I'd played with both of them before. Um, I played with Tiger and Flint that year when he won his 50th tour event on Sunday. That was really cool. But my first real experience with a lot of the top echelon guys off the golf course. And that was that was really cool for me, being pretty young, seeing how they operate, seeing what they do, seeing what they don't do, seeing how they react in the team room. Because at the time, I wanted to be on those teams every year. And sure. at some point, like now, being 38, I wanted to have been one of those mainstays. It didn't turn out that way, but that's that's okay. That's golf. But I wanted to see if I did um, if I did con- continue to have success and how they how they treated people and how they treated everybody in those team events. And it was it was uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience and makes you want to get back on those teams because it's truly fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's what everyone talks about. Yeah. How much fun they have. It's so much fun. Did you yep. feel like you belonged in that room, or did you feel like you're walking on eggshells being a rookie around some of those guys? They, I did at first, but they made sure that I didn't feel that way good. long, all of them. Um, and I, I had a pretty good relationship with Slew leading in because of Jay Davis, a lot of the older guys then, that Slew was friends with. And so he, he kind of grabbed me before, and he goes, look, man, we picked you because you deserve it, so let's go play golf. Yeah. That's all it is now. And, and that was great, and I needed to hear that. And uh, and I needed to I needed to feel that acceptance to get to Thursday. You know, you yeah. you, you don't want to feel like you're walking on eggshells, but right. everybody was accepting and fun. I mean, it was just fun riding the bus, just in the team room, eating. Every meal was team dinner. It was it was awesome. It was cool. Cool. Am I am I reading this right, or do I research this right? That you shut it down shortly after the Presidents Cup in '07 for a while. Did you take a break? Oh eight. Oh eight. Okay, I had the year wrong. So, well, your '08 season was a bit of a setback. Was there anything in particular you were struggling with in that year? I think I was just burnt out. Yeah, I was a little burned out. I played a ton of golf, and unfortunately, played a ton of good golf. Uh, end of five, end of 05, 2006, 2007. That push to make the Presidents Cup, make the Presidents Cup after a whale of a year, come out in '08 with real high expectations. And I didn't meet them, and I kept trying to meet them and trying to get better and trying to win and trying to win again and da 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 and pressing. I, I, yeah, perfect word, pressing. And I finished the FedEx Cup, and I went. That's enough. I was burnt out, tired, um, and just just shut it down. I think so. We ended then what? Probably end of August, first of September. I don't think I touched the club till Thanksgiving. 
which was a long time at that time for me, you know, six, seven weeks off, literally put them in a closet and didn't want to see them. Mm-hmm. And um, best thing that probably I could have done. I was going to say. Yeah, turned out all right. Hard you know, to argue with what happened next. Well, looking back on it, you know, if it went the other way, I'd have been the dumbest guy in the world. But, some, you know, that's just the way things work in life, I guess. So you had a T3 at the Buick to kick off the season. You tied for second at Quail Hollow. And then then you go to Beth Page, your U.S. Open. That week comes around. Did anything feel different about that week going into it? Yes. I Do you have my numbers there from that year? I don't. Okay. I can. <laughs> I, either, I either missed the cut here at Memorial or played so bad that I played really early Sunday. I remember being here on Sunday afternoon on the driving range. I didn't go over and play a practice round at the Lakes or Brookside because I'd played them before in qualifiers. I was playing so bad, I just wanted to hit balls, and I found a little something on the range here. Oddly enough, we're here having this, doing this podcast. And it was pretty simple. I was just trying to take the club back a little bit lower going back, and it just got my turn a little fuller, and I started hitting it, you know, solid again and just smashing it. And I shot 63 the next morning at the Lakes. And then all I had to do was hang on at Brooks. I think he shot one under, qualified pretty easily. Had an off week, uh, took the next week off Memphis uh, to get ready. And luckily, I'd qualified for 02 Bethpage. So I knew the golf course and knew what to expect, knew what to work on in that week off at home. And I remember my grandfather went with me to practice like he did every day. Um, and I remember I'd always practice in the morning. We'd have lunch and go play a few holes. And we're on the golf course playing. And I'd hit two drivers on every hole, and I'd hit two iron shots, and I'd, I'd play, basically play two balls. And we were driving back home, and he said, looks like you're, gonna, looks like you're swinging pretty good. You're going to have a good week. I said, well, why are you saying that now? He goes, well, I was just thinking about those drivers you hit. And he goes, every one of them, I think I could have, uh, as he would say in an old southern term, I think I could have thrown a blanket over both of them. <laughs> and I started thinking about it, and I was like, God, you're right. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't driven it this good in a while. So... I had really good feelings leading into Bethpage in 09 about my ball striking and still at the time, and it's still true today, and I think it's just my my uh, my makeup. It's all about how the putter goes. So I figured, all right, make some putts, I'm going to play well because I'm striping it. And uh, and I got there and practiced, prepared, practiced, prepared. The swing thought was still working. Ball's still drawing. It's like, all right, here we go. Didn't get to play Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> so it was say. just like – all right, let's kill the momentum. Did but, all the uh, practice rounds go as normal? I don't yeah, remember that. Yeah, every, every, everything was pretty normal. I think we got some weather maybe Wednesday evening or something, but I was already – I was long gone by then. I'm usually a nine-holer early Wednesday in the majors and done. But, uh, yeah, I went, went out there Thursday for a afternoon time and never hit a shot. Didn't even go to the range. And it was just uh, it was b- just bizarre week from then on. Well, you were there in 02. That was the like the first U.S. Open held in – like at a public course in New York, and I don't know how long. Mm-hmm. And the crowds, I just remember being absolutely insane. The anticipation for that event was huge. What did you re- did you were you anticipating that same kind of crazy atmosphere going into the week? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was nuts. You know, remember, unfortunately, they were on Sergio for the waggle yeah. and um, singing "Happy Birthday" to Phil, I guess, and all that stuff. It was nuts. But uh, had that crazy weather there Friday, Saturday. Um, I remember the cut was ten over because I shot eleven, and I was like ten over. That was the cut. Oh my God! I mean, it's hard yeah. to even fathom that. But, um, but again, it was a, uh, it was it was good to go back there. I obviously played in three or four other U.S. Opens leading up, but knowing what to work on, knowing what to expect with the fans, 
knowing where to go, knowing where the parking lot is, all that stuff can be tough at a U.S. Open if you've never been to the venue Just before. Overwhelming a little. Yeah, bit. overwhelming, and the stands are bigger, and the 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 crowds are bigger, and the they, and obviously the the difficulty of the test. Right. Um, but uh, but having been there before was definitely a benefit from knowing what to expect. So you go off your first round on Friday. Did you? How many holes did you play Friday? Hmm, six, five, six, something like that. I remember Saturday, which I remember Saturday playing 30 or 31 holes. So I played five or six the first day and doubled the first hole, which wow. was, yeah. And I've, I've said this a lot talking about it. The best thing for me right then and looking back on it after the fact was that it was about 200 yards to the second tee. Instead of walking right over mad, I had a couple hundred yard walk over the road, back a couple hundred yards to talk to myself and say, you know what? big deal everybody's gonna have some screw-ups if the u.s open let's just refocus and you know get make some pars make birdies when we can everybody's struggling out here it's sloppy it's tough it's the u.s open if i gotta go 20 yards to the tee and seethe might have been a different story on the next hole yeah but um as it was that might have been a break maybe not maybe it was just something i'm looking for but I, i think it was beneficial to have a long walk once you were playing, I don't really remember. Was was it raining while you were playing? Not often. Okay. Not often. It was. It would rain so hard that the play was canceled for everybody. Essentially. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think some people played a few holes Thursday. You know, eight or nine, ten holes maybe, and then it just came. And then you know, we never played the ball up. That that. Yeah. Kudos to the maintenance staff and maybe the USGA being stubborn, but I don't remember a mud ball, oddly enough. Um, but it it was it was a deluge Thursday, I think a little Friday morning, and then it seemed like it just would decide to rain overnight every night. And then, uh, but they maintained. I don't know how they did it, but the course was still pretty perfect. But where, unlike any other U.S. Open, unless it was like that, where the ball went, it stayed. Right. So you, you either hit a good shot or you didn't. There wasn't any bouncing through a green or bouncing through the rough on a dog leg or any of that. If you hit it there, it's pretty much going to be a foot or two feet from where the ball went. And then in that third round, you hit a rough patch as well. You had a, I think a bogey double, bogey stretch. Is that right? But before that, I mean, I guess were the soft conditions, did it just kind of give you a green light to attack pins? As, did you see that as an advantage for yourself? Anything yeah, in particular? well, going back to, to really having confidence in my golf swing and, and, and what, what, what my golf ball was doing, I, I think, you know, I remember Tiger talking about it years ago. He felt like he had his hand on his golf ball. You know, when he was really playing yeah. well, like he was, and I had that feeling leading into that week, and I still had that feeling that week that uh, I I knew which window it was going to come out of, and I knew I knew how to make it turn over ten yards, and I knew how to make it not turn over ten yards if it was a right pin. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and that it was just working. And um, but again, that rough patch you referenced, it's still one of those things. Like, all right, everybody's going to have that here. It's hard. You get in this rough. It's wet. It's gangly. It's just it's just hard, and you almost give yourself a pass at a U.S. Open for having a bad hole or two bad holes or a little bad patch of golf because it's just difficult. Um, but again, if I hadn't had that experience there before, if I hadn't had the experience a couple years before, wouldn't have known that. Um, but just a yeah, if you if you know where it's going and you know it's staying, or I'm sorry, if you know if you know where the ball lands is where it's going to stay, you do have green light more often. There's still some spots there you can't really go at, or I, I didn't feel I could go at. But um, but if I was trying to hit it 20 feet left of the hole to the fat side like you were talking about you're doing, I did it. And that's that's U.S. Open golf too and major golf. 
So. You were one back of Ricky Barnes. You paired with him for the final round. Did you play your entire final round on that Monday, or did it start on Sunday? Started. I, I played number one on Sunday night. That's it. So my first shot Monday morning was second tee. Okay. Yep. And did it feel like two? You were. I think you were four clear of third place. Did it feel like a two horse race, or were you like this is the U.S. Open? Anything it, can happen. It did feel like a two horse race. I misspoke. My first shot. Um, Monday morning was my second shot on number two. Ricky okay. and I hit our tee shots on two. Pardon me. Um, it felt like a two-horse race except for the horses that were like three through ten. Right. <laughs> right. You know, the score-wise it felt like that. But in the back of my head, and I'm not going to speak for Ricky, but I assume he felt that way too. I'm, again, I don't know. But those names that were behind us, um, one that was probably going to wear red and black and one that left-handed, you knew they were going to make a run. And you knew something was going to happen. And and sure enough, here they came. Yeah, um, I'm standing on 17T, looking over at 18, and Phil's up there by the by the green. I'm thinking, oh my God, he's 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 driven the green. He's gonna right. chip that in and be tied, you know. <laughs> but um, anyway, we we again can't speak for Ricky, but I I had this feeling that they were if we didn't hold serve, they were gonna make a run and make it tough on us. And sure enough, they did. As they should have. Did the, yeah, did the fact that the week was extended and it had so much weather issues, did that at all help, you think, with the nerves? I mean, did it kind of throw you off your schedule and you had less time to get nervous in any way? Or Yeah, you know, there wasn't much sleeping on it, yeah. you know, because sleep was, it was pretty quick. It was, you know, every day it was home at dark. Grab dinner on the way home and get as much sleep as you could because you're up, you know, whatever it was, 4.35 o'clock to restart at 7.30, 8 o'clock. Um, and so, yeah, there wasn't much sleeping on it, sleeping on being in the last group of the U.S. Open or sleeping on being in the lead or sleeping on anything. It was it was boom, 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 and you're back out there again and slopping through it. And so, yeah, that, that, that definitely uh, eased it a little bit as far as the nerves and thinking about it a lot. Would you classify your, your club choice off the 72nd hole as a layup? I'll uh, defer to my caddy on that because he had the driver, I think, tucked under his armpit. So we talked about it. We talked about it, actually. Um, I was so I I didn't see the tee was up. Yeah, I started. I walked up the hill behind 70 Green and took the right, and all the fans went, "No, no, no, you're up here." I went, "No, I'm going." No. And I looked up, I was, "Whoa!" And they were they were up on number five as well. So um, I said to Coop, my caddy, um, 16 years in August, by the way. So he put up, put up with me a long That's time. That's amazing. Um, and I says, well, you know, what's the cover on the bunkers on both sides? He's like 270, 275 on the right. I said, all right, what do you think about driver? He goes, um, we're at six iron. I went, we are? He goes, yeah. He goes, you've hit five wood from the back tee to the 150. He goes, it's 192 to the 150, six iron, nine iron, let's go. And I looked at the bag, and he had the driver tucked under the bib, under his arm. <laughs> so, yes, it was a layup, but it was a – it was because of him. I was going to – so just ask – I told a couple of our no laying up guys about that we were doing this interview, of course, and they said, all right, well, you got to ask about the six iron on 18. Yeah. If there's ever a, t- a pass to be given, it's on the 72nd hole of the U.S. Open. So I'm not going to give you a hard time about so two, that two, two six irons off of par four tees in the U.S. Open final round. Really? Five also, yeah. That was more strategy. Um, they put the tees up on five. Uh, dog, big dog leg left down the hill. You can't see the green. And Ricky had the tee, and he hit three or five with one of the two. And if he had hit a nice shot, I'd already made up my mind that I was going to go for it also. Well, he hit a he hit it left, and I thought – I couldn't see it, but I thought it was – I knew it was short-sided, I thought it might be in the heather. So I laid it up 
uh, to the top of the hill and still had a wedge in. And sure enough, his ball was in the heather, and I picked up a shot. So go. that was all. That was dependent on him. And you know, if I had the tee, I'd have probably gone for it there. But anyway, playing a little match play. Yep. Um, so after you won, how much did your did your life change pretty much overnight? Being a major champion, second yeah. second tour win. Yeah, literally overnight. Yeah, yeah my uh, uh, Michelle and management group. She called me and she goes, um, "That flip phone you got?" I said, "Yeah." She goes, "That's out." <laughs> I said, "What do you mean?" She goes. I have to be able to get a hold of you, and you have to know how to read an email and answer an email on your phone now. Went, oh, bummer. But um, no, it was it was quick. It was, um, you know, I, I say it all the time. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to know what I thought. Like all of a sudden, I'm smart. You know, hey, what do you think about this? Like, well, you didn't ask me that two weeks ago, and right. I hadn't won anything. But um, yeah, it, it changed. I got busy, and I got a lot of offers to go a lot of places and play a lot of cool tournaments, and uh, a lot of them I didn't. I I wanted to. I wanted to focus here, and I thought um, I thought the best chance to do that was have an off season, rest, and uh, get ready to try to improve on it the next season. The most gratifying um, thing about post that U.S. Open was com contending at the PGA, and you know, a decent back nine Sunday, I'd, I would I'd, I would have been uh, right there, and I finished fifth or sixth, and so that. That was kind of the Validating. validation of all right, I did it, and and I, I competed again, and, and, and that was uh, that was fulfilling, I think, and, and gratifying. Yeah, good good word. What was the celebration like after you won? It was great. We uh, straight to the city and uh, Benjamin Steakhouse actually. So, um, you know, typical guy meal: bunch of steak and bunch of red wine and Tignanello. That was great. So yeah, we had a good time. So when did the, when did the beard come into play? Um, fall 2010, out of just sheer laziness. I just, you know, two things I hate more than anything: shaving and ironing. One of them I don't do anymore. One of them I do as little as possible shaving. So I just got lazy with it, and somebody went, "Hey, man, that kind of looks cool. It looks pretty good." I was like, "Yeah, whatever." They're like, "No, no, I trim that and leave it." I was like. All right, we'll see. You know, let it grow, and next thing you know, there it was. Yeah. It was a thing. And, <laughs> uh, I enjoyed it. You know, it was you know something to talk about in the locker room, other than the seven iron. So it was it was fun. So then, in two, in fast forwarding to 20, uh, 2012, you in, you had an injury, your left knee, right? You heard it paddleboarding. Is that right? Uh, right knee, correct. Right. Yep, right knee. Um, yeah, out in uh, out in Kapalua. Um, yeah, I was paddleboarding and. Uh, I'd been paddleboarding four or five times a week for six, seven months, and uh, I guess Hawaii, when you hire a guide to take you around, you gotta wear shoes for their insurance because of the coral. And I was falling off like I'd done a hundred times and tried to spin over and fall on my back, and my right shoe caught on the edge of the board, and, um, and I heard it pop. So, uh, yep, yeah, busted my MCL up pretty good and tore my meniscus. So, took a few weeks off and tried to play, and. Um, a bad decision. Tried to rehab it, play through it, and just one of those—I don't know—the term competitive bad decisions. That one of those things you, looking back on, you wish just to got it operated on in February and been done with it. Instead, of waited till September and uh, formed some pretty bad habits in my golf swing from from trying to play through it and protect it. Um, That's kind of so. what I wanted to ask: is that. It, when you're when your living is made through your body, right? Like everything is kind of based on your body. It's got to be so hard unless you are devastatingly hurt to really hang it up and, and just say, "I'm not going to play." Right, right. No, that's exactly right. And it was 
it was one of those things like in practice, it, it was okay, it was fine. But once I got out walking, the stress on it from walking, um, trying to continue my workouts, and then the grind we were, we've talked a lot about of week, you know, a few weeks in a row, and it just it wore down even more, and my golf swing was already suffering, and I was at, in you know in, tra- in a transition on a six iron on number five in Greensboro, and it completely gave out, and you know again like you said, hard to stop if you're not unable to walk. I played five more holes, just moron, <laughs> and it, and you know so anyway did that and that was it. Um, surgery a month later and uh you know bittersweet because i got out of got out of surgery and my wife was the one that was sick and we found out we were pregnant with the first child when i got out of surgery so bitter, bittersweet surgery but it was uh, that was cool do you and your your game kind of took a dip during that time period but you've had a bit of a career resurgence in the last few years what do you attribute that to putting butter yeah yeah there's, there's no secret why i was struggling you know i, I fought the yips and no problem talking about it. No problem saying the word. I had it, have it. Not a not a thing, but uh, got a pretty good handle on it. Um, you know, still get nervous, still get anxious over some short ones, but uh, I've, I've worked hard enough on uh, the mental approach and, and some physical stuff. And, and I think my putting stroke's as good as it's ever been. Um, what 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 is that? What is that like to kind of go through that? I mean, everyone kind of battles that at some point. I think. Yeah, it's absolutely devastating to mentally to hit the ball like I normally hit it and walk up to a green and, and be nervous, even if it's the first hole on Thursday. And, you know, you hit a nice seven iron in there 15 feet, roll it by a couple feet and miss it, and you, I mean, it's devastating. Yeah. I just played the hole as it should be played, and because of a, a, an issue I have, a mental issue I have, I've just made bogey. And, um, but, yeah, I fought it, for, fought it for years, and I still get nervous. How did you address it, or what did you do to kind of combat Different, it? Well, I, I, over, I got over-instructed, my fault, too much information, too many people, instead of uh, sticking with one thing. Um, and I'm not blaming any of those instructors. They were all great, had my best interest, gave me a lot of good information, but I took too much information. And I got mentally swamped, and I kind of forgot, um, I forgot what made me a good putter. Albeit a streaky putter, I was a good putter. When it was streaky, it was really good. But I lost sight of that and kind of fell victim to technology, kind of fell victim to equipment, kind of fell victim to wanting information. Um, I'm not a dumb person, but I play better when I don't know much. Anyway, um, again, I'm not taking anything away from anybody I've ever worked with, but I, I asked for too much. Yep. And all they did was their job. Right. Um, but I think that compounded my issue because all of a sudden what I naturally did well wasn't natural anymore um, and I'm just now kind of getting back to that um, that natural kind of hands forward keeping them forward through the ball stroke instead of the neutral stuff that the new putters promote which is you know which is a fine way to putt obviously there's tons of people that putt well that way I'm just not one of them um, and I, uh, last year and uh, I predominantly clawed most of the year, especially from short. Um, and most of this year I've been regular handed and, uh, you know, been good, not great. You know, there's been some streaks where it was really good and some streaks where it was bad. And statistics say it was bad, but I don't feel like it's been that. Um, ball striking isn't where it needs to be so far, but we're uh, working on that too. There you go. I got to read is the Mark Brody stuff and you won't feel any pressure. <laughs> 
Uh, we'll get you out of here on this. So I hear you're quite a reader. What do you yep. read these days, or what do you like? What do you typically like to read? I just read? started a book called Sapiens, which is like a history of obviously Homo sapiens. But uh, I'm like six pages in. Literally started it last <laughs> night. But um, I'm a I'm a, I read everything. I've I've made a pact with myself for every I call them airport books. For every airport murder mystery, I got to read two proper books that I can actually gain some intelligence from so trying to read this uh sapiens uh just for some insight on you know human history basically and how we how we got here i think a lot of it's uh maybe sensationalized because nobody really has an account of depending on what you believe a million years ago or ten thousand years ago but it's uh it drew me in the 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 back of it so i'm interested but what's your number one like book recommendation or the uh pillars of the earth Pillars of the Earth. Pillars of the Earth, and, and there's there's two more, World Without End, and the newest one just came out, A Column of Fire, English writer named Ken Follett. Um, English history, religion, love, romance, murder, you name it. Wow. Every book has everything. Uh, it was recommended to me by a family member, and I finished it, and I just kind of reflected on it, and I said, all right, I've never read anything where I've like hit every emotion possible in, in a book. And that one did it and then the second one did it and now the third one's done it i just finished it so um pretty amazing so that would be uh that's my favorite of all time and that trilogy would be uh would be up there for recommendations did you really read four books during the u.s open yes that's how that's how much downtime i was in the hotel um (laughs) and you know uh yeah i mean again those were those airport books i was talking about pick them up and put them down and there you go two three hours and you're done with them but um any any way to pass the time out here when you're solo in a hotel? I understand it. So, all right. Thank you so much for your time, man. Sorry to thank take you. up so much of it, but thanks for thanks for joining. And uh, best of luck this week and down the road as well. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect